All right. You guys ready to look at some more Colossians? All right. I like to hear that. So you remember Colossians, the title of this series is The Supremacy of Christ, right? We're looking at supremacy. And uh, this book, as you remember, is written by Paul and Timothy to this church in Colossae. And uh, I want to remind you a little bit about Paul in case you've forgotten because it's important to know his backstory here as we look at this first part of this uh, chapter that we're going to look at. So soon after the early church was first formed on the day of Pentecost, not long after that, there was a young man named Stephen. He became the first to give his life for Jesus. He was arrested and he was put on trial for blasphemy. It was based on false testimony. He was brought to trial, and in his defense, given to the Jewish religious leaders, Stephen gave a full history of God's work among the Jewish people and how Jesus, the Messiah that they had been promised, instead of being uh, followed and, and listened to, was ignored and ultimately murdered. His words made them so angry that they murdered Stephen too. This time there was no taking him to the Romans and having them do it, for them or anything sneaky like that, they just straight up murdered him. They drug him out, they threw rocks at his head until he was dead. At this execution was another young man named Saul. He was also zealous for God. But Saul was blinded to the truth, and he was serving, serving the murderers that day. Saul went on to become a leading persecutor of Christians, and he caused a lot of suffering for those who were part of God's family. Until one day, God knocked Saul on his butt and set him straight. And uh, Jesus, the one Saul denied, the one Saul that that Saul had denied was God and who Saul definitely thought was dead and buried, suddenly confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, and he was very much alive. From Acts 9, 3 and 5, as he, this is Saul, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from from heaven suddenly shone down around him, And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So Saul, who had been blinded by dead religion to the reality of the living Jesus, was suddenly now blind in real life. You probably know the rest of the story, how he was healed through a believer named Ananias, how Saul became a believer in Jesus himself. Somewhere along the way, People started calling him Paul instead of Saul, and uh, Paul eventually became a powerful preacher and missionary. And uh, so that's the history of Paul, just in case you forgot who it is that's writing this letter. So starting in Colossians 1, 24-25, participating in suffering. Paul writes, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue For his body, the church, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. So you see when Paul says in verse 24 that he's glad when he suffers for you, and he's talking to the Christians in Colossae, that he suffers for you in his body because he's participating in the sufferings of Christ. He's not just spouting platitudes. Paul uh, knows a thing or two about suffering for Christ because he's been at both ends the giving and the receiving of suffering. After his conversion, Paul endured 
during his ministry, multiple beatings and stonings, including one that left him for dead. Maybe he actually was dead and resurrected. The text doesn't really make it clear. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a venomous snake. Uh, He's jailed for long periods of time, multiple times, and at the end of his life, he was eventually beheaded. Uh, So, yeah, Paul suffered. Um, He knows what he's talking about. But Paul says he's glad to suffer these things because he's participating in the suffering of Christ. If you have a translation that you're reading from that's other than the New Living Translation that I'm using, it may say something along the lines of, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul doesn't mean that there's something missing from what Jesus suffered on the cross or there's something more to do. He just means that because the church, Christians, that's us, the body of Christ, he means when we suffer, Christ suffers. Did you notice in Acts, when Jesus confronts young Saul on the road to Damascus, he doesn't ask him, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? All right? So when you're persecuting Jesus' people, you're persecuting Jesus. Last week, uh, Randy talked about Jesus being supreme and using the phrase of Jesus being the head. And so, you know, that was in terms of being like the boss, the head honcho, right? But the head, Jesus being the head, is also like the head of the body. In um, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses that analogy like literally talks about Christ being the head of the body, and he talks about Christians as the body of Christ. And he reminds us that when one part of a body suffers, it all suffers. And he says that we're all part of the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. So in that analogy, uh, as Christians, we're all part of the body of Christ. He's the head, so he's the controlling part of our body. Some of us are fingers and toes, and some of us are lungs. Some of us may be a gallbladder, um, you know. But all of us are important. We have a part to play in in the body, right? You you need it, and um, it's important. You ever been so sick or maybe stubbed your toe so hard that something else hurt? Uh, I'll give you an example. Last Was it last week or has it been two weeks now? I got really sick, and uh, it turns out I just realized yesterday I was reading about some things that it probably was the norovirus, which is the stomach bug that they get on cruise ships a lot, but it's been going around apparently. And um, so it's a it, you get like... Um, severe stomach pains, and then liquid starts coming out multiple parts of your body, and it's really gross. And but it it hurts a lot, and um, it hurt my stomach so bad that my back started hurting, and then I got a headache. And um, I was kind enough to share with my wife, as a good husband does, and she got it. And I think she can testify how painful this stomach bug was. But. So that's just an example, a pretty gross one, but it's an example of how you can be sick and the problem was in my gut, right? It was in my stomach or upper intestine or wherever that bug lives. But it made my head hurt. It made my back hurt. My whole body felt that. And so as a body of Christ, when one part of us is suffering and hurting, all of us suffer and hurt. And that's true of our local body here in the church. When one of us is hurting and is in pain and is suffering, we all feel that. And Jesus feels it, and he feels it, 
And then also for the worldwide body of Christ, when there's Christians suffering around the world, we should feel that too and, and um, understand that. So you may think that you're not being persecuted like Christians in the past or like our brothers and sisters are who live in China or Nigeria or in the Middle East. No one here this morning is at risk of being murdered for gathering to worship Jesus. Um, you're not going to go to prison for telling others about Christ, at least not yet. That day may come soon. Um, but you do, at least I hope you do, make choices every day to follow Christ and how you live, uh, right? I mean, if you're being led by the Spirit, you're going to do things to follow Jesus and be more like Jesus, and there's going to be consequences to those choices. Uh, how do you approach your work, right? How do you do the work that you've been given to do? Do you do it the way Jesus wants you to do it, or do you do it the way that the world approaches your work, right? There's the way that God wants us to treat people and to do our work, and then there's the, maybe the easier way. Do you come at it the right way? Do you take the easier path to make money with less effort? Do you treat the things at work as if they don't matter? What about relationships? When we follow Jesus' teachings, it can cause friction with our loved ones who want nothing to do with him, and that can cause family friction sometimes or friendship friction. If we're trying to be like Jesus and other people don't want to do that, that can cause friction. Sometimes he wants us to tell uncomfortable truths, and then we have to deal with the fallout of that. So these little things are not big sufferings like we think of when we read passages like this, but they are consequences they face, and they do count. And uh, so we do suffer as Christians. If we're not suffering at least somewhat, we're probably not doing the things that it takes to be like Jesus. And um, so think about that. They do count. And again, I, I think it even applies. And I know that there's things that we suffer just in the daily life of being alive on earth and dealing with the aches and pains. And until Christ comes and makes us whole in our new bodies, um, we're going to deal with those things. And, and Christ feels that. He cares about us. We are the body of Christ. He is the head of the body. He hurts when we hurt, and we're, when we are persecuted, he is persecuted. I want you to know this. I think it's important because if you're a believer, and when you're going through suffering, whether anyone else recognizes your pain or not, Jesus feels it. He hurts alongside you, and it's okay to talk to him about it, honestly. Um, as a certain Super Bowl commercial says, he gets us. There is a union with Christ when we are persecuted for him. Paul says there's a blessing to share in that suffering with Christ. In Philippians, he wrote, I want to know Christ and I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's not just dealing with it or muddling through it. You know, it's okay, I, it sucks, but I'm going to deal with it. No, he's glad to suffer for Christ because he getting to know Jesus better, and because of the suffering, he's experiencing this power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you look at it that way? I mean, I have not looked at it that way, but Paul does. He sees it as a way to experience this power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. That's what Paul sees in suffering. All right, moving on from suffering. 
God's secret plan has been revealed. Colossians 1, 25 and 27, through 27. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was, was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Paul was made an apostle by Jesus and was given the mission of spreading the good news to the Gentiles. So remember, Gentile simply means not Jewish. Just like the Amish, we're familiar with them around here. The Amish have two categories, right? Amish and English, right? So the Jewish have two categories, Jewish and Gentiles, us and them. So that includes you and me. When you read the Bible and you see Gentile, we're in that category, unless you happen to be Jewish, which I don't think anybody in here is Jewish. Could be wrong. Anyway, so that's us. So, continuing to talk about the body of Christ, Paul says that God gave him the responsibility of proclaiming this previously secret message. Your Bible may use the word mystery, and I I like the word mystery. Paul does too, because he uses it a lot. But what is mystery? Why is what is this mystery, and why is it a secret? So the message, the mysterious message, is that Christ lives in those who are loyal believers in Him, even Gentiles. He empowers us to do the things He wants us to do, to share in and display His glory in the unseen realm, and to spread His kingdom as we go. This was revolutionary for so many reasons to Jews and Gentiles alike in that time. For Jews, to think that Gentiles could be re-included in the family of God was unthinkable. And for the pagans of the first century, because they all believed that gods lived in temples. But Christianity said God lives among his people, and all ethnicities could join in. He lives among us. We are the temple of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ. So why was it a secret? Well, it was a secret because this full understanding of how he would accomplish this was not in any one passage in the Old Testament that you could point to. It spread throughout it, but it was not even it was not clear. Even the first century Jewish experts in the law, uh, who spent more time than anyone else on earth, probably in history, ever studying the Messiah, could not see it and put it together. In the first century, Jewish people, they were under this Roman authority, and they really wanted the Messiah to come and free them from oppression. And so they knew a lot about what they thought the Messiah was going to look like, and they had it wrong. They had it wrong because it was not clear to them. But once you have the Holy Spirit's enlightenment and the ability to look back, you can put it together in the Scriptures. These various references all over, in hindsight, are obviously looking forward to Jesus. But in the moment, it was not clear. And think about how many things in the future are not clear to us um, about eternity and God's future plan. So it's like looking in a cloudy mirror. What is eternity going to look like for us? What's heaven going to be like? We don't know exactly that, that, but once we're there, we're going to be able to look back and say, oh, that's what he meant, right? So it's going to be like looking through a clear glass at that point, to borrow from from Paul. Um, God deliberately did not reveal his full plan for redemption because, remember, there's these hostile supernatural powers out there and they don't want us to be redeemed. They do not want the nations to be brought back into this relationship with God and be brought back into the family of God. 
If they knew the plan, they would not have crucified Christ. Paul writes about this in Corinthians. He's, again, talking about the mystery. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. And the rulers in this verse here is not the, you know, Caesar. It's not any ruler of Israel or the Jewish leaders. The rulers here, the word that's used there refers to spiritual rulers. So that's who Paul's talking about. So it's this mystery. And you can look back and we can put it together. It makes sense to us. It was, but it was surprising to them because they expected a Messiah who was going to be a military or a political leader. They did not see that the suffering servant of Isaiah was going to be the Messiah. They did not understand that God himself was going to come down and take on the form of a man and suffer and die on the cross, and that would be the redemption that we would need, or that he would be resurrected. None of that was expected by any of the powers, and so that's the mystery. But now it's been revealed to us. It's been revealed to God's people. That's us. Okay, Randy's mentioned this, but I just want to remind you because it's a good remember, reminder. Uh, God's people. Your Bible might say saints, but it means holy ones. In the Old Testament, this word referred to heavenly beings who are part of God's family or divine counsel. But in the New Testament, it's used to refer to believers. So we who believe in Jesus are members of his family and counsel. He invites us to not only be part of his kingdom, and here's the exciting part, but active agents in accomplishing the goals of the kingdom. We have assurance of this glory because he lives in us. So we're not just part of the kingdom. We're part of, we're like a knight, right? We're his secret agent in spreading the kingdom. We don't just sit back and wait. We actually get to spread it around. That's what it means to be a holy one or a saint. Uh Uh-oh, did I skip a page? Nope. That would be weird. Okay, kingdom agent. If Christ lives in us and we share in his glory, what does that mean for our lives? What does it mean to be a holy one in God's kingdom? Well, here's what Paul and his companions were doing. It's probably a good model for us to follow. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. So we tell others about Christ. This is what Paul says they're doing. We tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on God's mighty power that works within me. All right, let's break that down. We tell others about Christ, which means spreading the kingdom by bringing other people in, right? We're going to tell other people. Remember Dallas Willard's definition of God's kingdom? Anybody remember that? God's kingdom is the effective reach of God's will. So where people are doing God's will, that's God's kingdom. Think about like a medieval king where his rule is happening, that's his kingdom, right? If there's a place where a medieval king and people aren't following his what he wants to happen, that's probably not part of his kingdom. And so God's kingdom is where people are doing his will. And so we can expand God's kingdom by helping other people to do his will. 
So that starts by bringing them in as Christians and helping them to become believers. And then we disciple them and we help them to grow and to do God's will. That's expanding God's kingdom. All right. So here are some ways we do that. We tell other people about Christ. We're going to warn them. So the word here of warning them means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, to admonish or instruct. So that's what it means to warn. And the idea that comes to me is when a bridge is out, and we use this a lot with our kids. None of them are here this morning, so I can bring this up without embarrassing them, hopefully. But, uh, you know, when the bridge is out on a road, the right thing to do when a car is coming down that road and you know the bridge is out, the right thing to do is to tell the person driving the car that, hey, the bridge is out further down this road. You don't go that way, right? But, you know, maybe the person's out for a nice drive and they're just really enjoying the day and it'd be kind of rude to stop and tell them. Or maybe you're shy and you don't like confrontation. But the bridge is out. So you need to stop and tell that person that the bridge is out, right? That's what it means to warn. And if you're in the car and you're driving down the road and someone stops and tells you that the bridge is out, do you get mad because they pulled you over? Or are you happy because they told you the bridge is out, right? If you continue on this way, down this path, it's going to lead to tragedy because the bridge is out and you're going to drive off the bridge into the river. So that's what it means to warn and instruct, and that's what we do. That's part of what we do. All right, so the second part is teaching them. So they warn them and they teach them, and that's instructing. That's more straightforward, I think. We teach people, so we're going to teach people how to be Christians. We're going to disciple them and help them grow in uh, what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And I just want to remind you that Paul is writing this letter from prison, right? So Paul's writing this letter from prison, and he's saying, this is what we do. We warn them and we teach people. Paul's in prison. What's your excuse? What's my excuse, right? And then they do this with all the wisdom that God has given us. So they don't use their own wisdom. They don't rely on the worldly methods of doing things. They use God's wisdom, right? Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. We know that verse really well around here. Rely on God's wisdom. And why do they do this? Because we want to present them, that's the people they're teaching and warning and telling others about Christ. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. So perfect is the word that the New Living Translation uses. Other translations might say mature, and that's, I think, probably a better word, but they both work. You just have to think about them in context. It's not perfect as in, um, you know, we think perfect. You think you have to be sinless. We don't want to make people who are sinless. That's not what it means. Mature as in, you can be mature and still sin, but how do you handle it when you sin? What are you going to do with that? You know, years ago, um, when I was a youth pastor here at Grace Bible, so a long time ago, uh, Randy brought this verse to my attention, and he challenged me to come up with a description of what it would look like to have produced a mature Christian teenager. Uh, You might think mature teenager is an oxymoron, and you wouldn't be wrong. But it was definitely a challenge for me, who was barely older than the kids in the youth group at the time, 
to envision what a spiritually mature teen might look like. And uh, however, you know, we talked about it a lot, and over the years, as I have grown up myself, I've come to understand through my journey with God that he's always working on us and will never be perfect or sinless until we meet him face-to-face in eternity. But there are hallmarks of maturity along the way. You can start with things like the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Uh, And those things will let you know if you're being controlled by the Spirit of Christ or if you're being controlled by your own flesh. Okay, too often we look at this little aside here. The The fruit of the Spirit are not things for you to do on your own, okay? You don't try to work on being good and kind and all these things and patient that the fruit of the Spirit has. These are natural outflowings of when you're letting the Spirit control you, this is what it produces. Too often we look at these lists and say, I've got to work on this myself. And God says, no, come, come be with me. Sit at my feet and learn from me, and these are the things that I will produce. So look at those. They're hallmarks. Okay, They're going to let you know. You can also look at Second Peter. There's a list in Second Peter chapter 1 of virtues that you can add to your faith. And these virtues, virtues will keep you from being ineffective in your pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ more intimately. Ultimately, the goal is to become more and more like Jesus and be controlled by his spirit and be operating under his power. So there you go. There are some goals on the road to maturity. And that's what Paul wants to present people who are mature when they meet Jesus face to face. Paul says, we work and struggle hard, and we depend on God's mighty power working in us. So it's not our own power that we're working hard under. It's God's mighty power. It's working, God, and he uses this phrase, it's in here multiple times, God's mighty power is working powerfully within us. And these words are dunamis and energeo, and they're spelled like dynamite and energy. So God's dynamite energy is working within us, to help us do these things. Does that give you an idea? I mean, some of us need coffee and Mountain Dew just to get started in the day, but God's got dynamite energy to help us go. So Mountain Dew or dynamite, right? And that is for me as much as anybody. All right. Colossians 2.1. Remember, uh, there weren't chapters in this letter when Paul wrote it, so this is all part of the same thought. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. Paul's never met these people at Colossae or this church at Laodicea, which was nearby. He's never met them personally. They're kind of like second-generation Christians. They, they weren't, these were not Christians who the apostles or Paul evangelized. Someone at, in this town was over at a, uh, Ephesus, I think, and heard the message and came back and started the church there. And so they, they've never had direct contact. But Paul's heard about them, and he cares about them, and uh, he's agonizing over them. And he's agonizing over the many other believers he's never met personally. I think it's kind of cool, but you can even include ourselves in this sentence because we never met Paul personally, uh, and we are multiple generations away. But, um, you know, we're benefiting from this letter as well. But think about it. When we work... For the Lord, and we work hard for Him. Think about the people we can impact that we've never met. And you know, you may help someone grow in the Lord, and then maybe they're going to help someone else grow in the Lord or introduce them to Jesus. And so we can have this effect. And so we should be working hard and agonizing over how are we helping other people grow as well. Okay, in on the secret. 
Besides working hard under God's power to spread his kingdom, what else comes from knowing the secret of God's plan? What are Paul's goals in sharing this message with these believers? Colossians 2, 2-3. Paul says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie all the treasures of wisdom. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So having a common goal and a common knowledge creates a community. In this community, we are to encourage each other, which is the word parakaleo, and to be knit together in love. So if you've heard that word parakaleo here before, maybe, maybe Sunday mornings, we have this thing called paraclesis, and maybe you haven't heard that explained, so, uh, or you've forgotten. But Sunday morning before church at 9 o'clock, paraclesis is a time to gather with others, and uh, there's kind of two pieces to it. One is to go over the previous week's sermon and talk about it and explore the ideas a little deeper and discuss it. And there's also a time to um, to pray for each other and to share uh, real prayer concerns. And the idea is to go deep with those and not just talk about, um, you know, as Randy would say, Aunt you know, Aunt Bay's, Aunt B's uh, bum knee or whatever. Not that those things don't matter because they do, but um, also to think about like, how are you growing in your faith and share that? Or how are, you know, the neighbor kid that's struggling that you shared about that's struggling with depression or have you been able to help him look about Jesus? Those kinds of things. That's what paraclesis is. It's an opportunity to um, encourage each other. That's the word at paraclesis, encourage. Pericleo. But then there's this idea of being knit together in love. Knitting, speaking of mysteries, mysteries, knitting is a mystery to me. How many people in here do the knitting thing? I know there's a few that do the knitting thing. Crochet. Crochet counts too, okay? In fact, maybe crochet is even more so. Okay, knitting is a mystery to me and crocheting because you take this random yarn and you take two sticks and you wave them together and uh, eventually something comes out that's really useful like a washcloth or a sweater. And, um, you know, someone knits a thing for you or crochets a thing for you, you know they've committed some time and energy to that thing and they've put some love into it and uh, they've made something useful out of it, right? So... uh, and when they've done it well, it doesn't come apart easily. So they've taken these multiple different yarns and come together, and now it's woven together tightly, and it doesn't come apart, and it's useful, and you can now pick up something hot or it keeps you warm if it's a sweater, you know, or, you know, it's a washcloth. You can clean things. Cool stuff, but it's knit together, right? So you've got these multiple strands that are now tightly woven together and they don't come apart. And that's what Paul wants as us, as a community, as this church he's writing to. He wants us to be woven together, to be knit together by love, and to be encouraged as we do that. And so that's what he wants. And then Paul's back to talking about this mysterious plan. Remember, he likes this phrase a lot. It's important to him that these believers he has never met have confidence in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and all the riches of wisdom that come from him. Remember earlier Paul says that they teach with all wisdom? Well, this is where he gets the wisdom. It comes from Christ. 
Do you want to get wisdom, knowledge, or understanding? Proverbs says you should. Um, Then grow in your relationship with Christ. Proverbs also tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That verse isn't so popular these days because we don't want a God who is to be feared. We only want a God who is loving. And certainly God loves us. I mean, he is love. He is the source of love. But he is also the Lord Almighty, the creator of the universe, and the power that holds it all together. He is to be feared. And his love is all the greater for it. So as we learn that, we begin to have some wisdom. Not that I have attained any of this myself, but I can share what the scriptures tell me and along the road that I'm growing. And we get to know this wisdom as we get to know Christ. It's hidden in him. These are things, you know, as Christians, we get to know these things that are hidden, and uh, the world doesn't see it because you have other places in the Bible it talks about you have to be spiritual to see it. And um, they don't see it. They look at things they look at things that look foolish to the world, but to us it's the very power of God, right? And so in Christ lie hidden all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so as you grow in him, you grow in all this stuff and it's it's just awesome. Strong faith, Colossians two, four through five. I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. Why did Paul spend so much of his letters talking about this mystery of God's plan? In fact, here's another reference in Romans to the mystery. I'll read it real quick, Romans 16. Now all glory to God who is able to make you strong just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has been has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now, as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere, so that they too might believe and obey him. So the Greek culture of the first century, and this included Romans, it was all influenced by the Greeks. It, that culture was big on secret knowledge. Besides the normal pantheon of gods that you're familiar with, you've heard about, uh, Zeus and Apollo and all those, um, there were springing up at this time many so-called mystery religions. Um, These were religions where you had to be initiated into a secret society by rituals. And then once you were in, you could be filled in on the secrets of that religion that no one else could know. This was a thing in the Gentile mind. It was big to them. It kind of reminds me of like, hopefully I'm not stepping on any toes here, but like the Masonic Lodge and and things like that, where once you're in, then you get to know the secrets of the Lodge and you get to, you know, become a higher level Mason or whatever. But that's exactly what it was. So there were many alternative sources of truth in the first century. You could worship your choice of God You could join a secret society. You could think it as all just silly and just a front for politics or money. Did that sound familiar? And in many ways, we see this still or again today. Um, Today we have similar things like, uh, you know, Mormonism is Joseph Smith saying, hey, I've got secret stuff that's not in the New Testament. We've got Wicca and pagan religions are making a comeback and growing We've got whole Christian denominations are leaving 
historical and orthodox beliefs behind in favor of whatever is popular with, you know, culture. The fastest growing religion on census uh, boxes, you know, census takers in the Western world is none. All these people think they have a well-crafted argument for why Jesus Christ, as presented in Scripture, is not the answer. But we, we have Christ living in us. His power is working in us. As our confidence grows in that, then we will not be deceived by all these other options that are vying to be sources of truth. When we live by his power, then we are living as we should, and our faith in Christ will be strong. All right, so here's a few takeaways. These are all things I've mentioned before. I just, uh, some short little reminders. Number one, you don't suffer alone. Christ and the whole body suffer with you. Correlation to that, we should seek out those who are suffering and do what we can to help them. Number two, Christ's mighty power is at work within you to help you live the way that you should and do the things he wants us to do. Number three, we need to encourage each other to grow to maturity in Christ. And number four, be confident in your understanding of God's plan. And as we do the things, as we go to Christ, as we let his power work within us, and as we encourage each other and grow in our maturity in Christ, then our confidence and our understanding of his plan grows. All these things are intertwined. And so this is my prayer for us as Grace Bible Church and for each of us individually is that we do these things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you have given us in this book of Colossians, this letter. And uh, Father, I thank you for the power that is at work within us, in our hearts, in our lives. I thank you for this uh, secret of the ages that is available to us. And that as we get to know you more and more and become more and more like you, these secrets are revealed to us. We get to become more and more knowledgeable of you and become more and more like you. And to do the things you want us to do, to be your agents, your spreading your kingdom. And uh, Father, I just thank you for all of that and how that works together. It's pretty awesome. And uh, I just pray for the rest of this day and this week that the reality of your power working in us would take over our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.